Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. 
Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash milkstreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash milkstreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. I grew up with a myth around Irishmas, and it was mainly a myth about the virility of your manhood. So Irishmas is something that is good for your virility as a man, you know. So all the guys, them, they would be drinking Irish moss, you know, and we'd, we'd mix with all type of concoction. That was Ziggy Marley. I'll be interviewing Ziggy later in the show about Jamaican food, his new cookbook, and also growing up in Trenchtown and Bull Bay. But right now, it's time to check in with Raina Javeri about what's cooking at Milk Street. Raina, how are you? I'm well, Chris. Hello. This holiday, we're going to do something a little different. We're not going heavy. We're going light. Uh, and poached salmon is a, is a classic recipe because it serves a crowd, a whole side. But I have two problems. You know, when you immerse fish like salmon in liquid and cook it or poach it, it tends to get chalky and dry. And also, it doesn't have that much flavor, really. So we want the idea of poached salmon, but we want it to taste good. So what do we do? So, Chris, we actually turn to the French for inspiration. They do an oven-poached method for salmon, but we're going to take it a step further. We actually start with a 20-minute soak in soy sauce, and this marinade gives a layer of deep and earthy flavor to the fish, which I love. And we also prefer using a salmon fillet that's about one and a half to one and three-quarter inches thick. So... This is a whole side of salmon, and rather than poaching, what we're really doing here is steaming the fish, and it gives it a ton more flavor. And this goes on a simple baking tray. We surround it with some vegetables and a splash of vermouth, and then cover it with aluminum foil and stick it straight in the oven. And this takes how long? So, Chris, actually, we we don't worry about time here. We're worried more about the temperature. So we roast this salmon until it registers 120 degrees in the thickest part of the fillet. And then, look, sauce makes everything better. So we have a sauce for the salmon as well. And we use the strained liquids from our baking sheet, add a little butter, lemon juice, and some dill. And that can be drizzled straight over the salmon. It's delicious. And my favorite part, Chris, because we're feeding a crowd for the holidays, is that this salmon tastes just as good served at room temperature as it does warm. So a lot less fuss for me. So this is oven poached salmon that's actually oven steamed salmon. Raina, thank you. You're welcome. You can find this week's recipe on our website, MilkStreetRadio.com. All of our shows are also available at iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Now let's take some of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. She's star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals, also author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, let's take some more calls. Let's do it. Hello. Who do we have on the line? This is Karen Hurst. I'm just really thrilled to be able to speak with both of you. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, thank you. Where are you calling from? Panama City Beach, Florida. How can we help you today? I had a question about the mystery of the successful deglaze. 
I'm missing some principles to be able to successfully deglaze all the time. Sometimes it works, and sometimes I end up with just a bunch of little brown bits that it's really a disaster. Like, do you have to have alcohol? Is there a certain temperature that the liquid needs to be, or what's the secret? So you're mainly feeling like your brown bits are not dissolving. Right, and sometimes I can get them up really easily, and then other times they just burn. <laughs> it's not pretty. Well, usually what the bits are, are they're whatever color they're going to be before you ever deglaze the pan. So if they looked burned, I wouldn't deglaze the pan because it's going to taste okay. burned. I'm going to give an answer, Chris, and then you're going to tell me what you think. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> He's like, guess. this bossy woman. Um, so what I would do, first of all, you're not using a nonstick pan, are you? You're using a regular pan. I'm using a regular pan, and I try not to do the um, nonstick. Right, good. So if the brown bits look fine at the bottom of the pan, not burned, I'd take the pan off the heat for just a second if you're going to add cold liquid. And it's okay to add cold liquid. It's just that if you have a really hot pan, a really cold liquid, the pan could go into thermal shock, which is not good for the pan. So just pull it off for half a second. Also, if it's alcohol, it could catch fire. Take it off the burner, add the liquid to it, and then take a spatula, you know, like a metal spatula, like a pancake turner or a rubber spatula if you want, and just scrape the bottom with the liquid, put it back on the burner and let it simmer. And you can use any liquid you want. You can use water, you can use chicken broth, you can use wine, you can use apple juice. It's all good. And then just okay, but and it doesn't matter whether it's hot or cold. Should the liquid be about the same temperature as what you have in there to that try would, and like equalize that it? Would, or? Nah, that's not going to make a difference in the deglazing. Okay. It's going to just make a difference in how the pan feels about it. If you take a right, hot right, pan right. from the burner and put it under cold water, it could buckle. Sarah, it's interesting how the pan feels about it. You think that like they're anthropomorphic? Oh, you know, they, have, have, a, they have feelings? Well, no, no, wait a second. Let me just ask Karen. Karen, because I phrased it that we way. Do, we do want a happy pan. You're, yeah. you're gonna be, happy you're, pan, you're, happy meal. I got my point across because I made you feel empathy for the pan, didn't Sa- I now? That's right. Exactly. Sa- Sarah's talking to her pans. Okay. Yes. Now, the one thing I would say, I think part of your question was the burn bits. Sometimes when you're sautéing, there's too much heat for the food in the pan, and you start to get blackened bits at the bottom. If that happens, take the food out of the pan, and you're going to have to clean the pan. You have to lose that exactly. stuff because otherwise it's going to taste terrible. So that is like, nothing don't wait to too long. Yeah, it's not a question of deglazing; it's a question of sautéing. So if you there's too much heat and you burn, take it off, remove the food from the pan, clean the pan and then continue. But you can't let that stuff sit there because it'll ruin the dish. Deglaze along the way. Right. Good point. Ah, okay. Yeah, that's another thing. That's I a do. good point. Throw yeah. some water in. Okay, yeah. Deglaze the pan. Right. Wipe it dry. Start with a little gotcha. more oil in the next batch. Yeah. yeah. But you know, okay. the, the reason you really want to do it, and I'm glad we're discussing because it's so important because there's so much flavor in those brown bits. You know, oh, I know. Yeah. And when I do it right, it turns out so well. Yes. I think what I might be doing is just waiting too long yeah. to do it. I yes. Mean, yeah. Waiting until they get too brown. I think that's the problem right there. Okay. Okay, great. And be sure to talk to your pants. <laughs> Like Sarah does. Take good care of those <laughs> right. pants. Take care. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks so much, y'all. I so appreciate it. Sure. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. If you'd like your cooking questions answered, give us a ring. That's 1-855-4-BOWTIE, 1-855-4-BOWTIE. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name is Alan, and uh, I'm actually quite privileged to be speaking to you, Chris. <laughs> I don't know. That's very a matter few, of opinion Very there, few Alan. people probably share that opinion. But, uh, <laughs> it's a privilege to chat with you. How can we help you? 
Well, um, I was actually quite thrilled to receive my first charter issue of Milk Street. And on the first page, I see Pie Crust Perfect, and that's the first article I went to. And I'm reading, and I see in bold letters, don't skip the sour cream. Obviously, that's pretty important in the recipe. So my question basically is based on kosher laws. Whenever we have a meat meal, we are not permitted to eat dairy together with meat, or even after the meat meal, we would have to wait six hours before we could have anything dairy. So if I wanted to make a pie that I could eat after a meat meal, I would need to have a substitute for butter, which could probably be easy to find, but I'm not so sure that I could find a suitable non-dairy substitute for sour cream. Well, in that recipe, we only used, I think, two tablespoons of sour cream. And you could, if you wanted, just eliminate that. I'd add a little more butter up front, like to have two tablespoons of butter added instead of the sour cream. That would be fine. If you can't use butter, there are recipes using vegetable oil pie crusts. I don't love them because they come out like cookie dough. Heavier, I think. Yeah, they're kind of crispy. They're not flaky. They're not tender. But they do work. I agree with Chris. Um, I've seen some recipes using coconut oil, extra virgin coconut uh-huh. oil. And also a lot of Mediterranean cuisines use olive oil, right. which is sort of an interesting twist. I haven't tried any of the new vegetable shortenings that are you know, different. Have you tried them, Chris? Yeah, that's the other thing you could use. They don't have trans fats now, they claim. Although yeah. I guess trans fats is probably good for us. We'll find out in 10 I know. Years. If you wait long yeah. enough, butter's going to be good long. for us. Tra- trans fats. Yeah. Just use Crisco. Yeah. The new Crisco that doesn't have trans fats, and you can can make a lovely pie dough with that. Yeah, very flaky. very flaky. The other thing I was going to say, why don't you go for an apple crisp instead and, you know, put the apples in the bottom of a casserole and then make a fun crust with things you can have. Nuts, sugar. Lots of sugar. You know, you could do oatmeal, you could do crushed matzah, you know, uh, and not use the butter, just use some sort of vegetable oil that you like. Of course, all of these are possibilities. I was only hoping that I could uh, get the perfect pie crust that was easy to work with. That recipe depended on cornstarch and water. Which is so interesting. And you cooked it into a gel and then froze it for 10 minutes so it was chilled. Do you think that would make a difference if you added that and used Crisco? If you did that with Crisco, I think it would be great. I think that's the solution here. Just substitute Crisco for butter. Crisco for butter and extra Crisco for the uh, amount of uh, sour cream. cream. Yeah, Yeah. that should work And do the cornstarch thing. It'll be fine. In fact, it may actually be flakier than butter. It probably will. Just... Yeah. (laughs) That's great. I mean, uh, thank you very much for the suggestion. I will actually let you or your magazine know how it worked out. Oh, that would be great. Well, just let us know if it does work out. If it... No, <laughs> if it doesn't, we need to know too. Okay, okay. Well, you know, we should test it with the Crisco in the kitchen. Yeah. We should do that. We'll let you know, but All you'll right. let us know. Well, I'm definitely going to try it very soon. Alan, thank you so much. What a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, take care. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. After the break, I chat with Ziggy Marley about his new book, the Ziggy Marley and Family Cookbook. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer, 
Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are and I think that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it you're reminded like oh wow Yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to talk to Ziggy Marley. You know him as the eldest son of Bob Marley. He's also leader of the band Ziggy Marley and the Melody Makers. But he is also a philanthropist, a voice actor, producer, and now author of the Ziggy Marley and Family Cookbook. Welcome to Milk Street. Yeah, thanks for having me. Pleasure. Uh, I've spent very little time in Jamaica, but could you tell us about Kingston? You, you, you say in your book you moved out to Bull Bay when you were young. But just talk about Kingston when you were younger, uh, the neighborhoods, just what it was like to grow up there. Yeah, Kingston was a very vibrant place when I was growing up. Lots of activity, lots of music, you know, soccer being played on the streets, um, people hanging out on the streets, just a, a very um, strong com- sense of community and, and friendship. A lot of people selling things from out of their houses, you know, whether it be ice cones or fruits or eggs or whatever. So it was a strong community um, feeling back in those days. Was there street food? Yeah, man, street food. Street food is, is, is the food where people cook in at them house and sell to people, sell to the neighborhood. And then some people even cook on the outside, too, outside of them house or on the street side. Um, and so that food you would buy. And sometimes you, it's not even food. Sometimes it's bread, bread and butter or bun and cheese or something like that. But most of that stuff was sold by individuals. Not We didn't have to go to the supermarket or to restaurants or nothing like that. It was all within the community. So you could get rice and peas? You could, what, what, yeah. What would you get? Rice and peas yeah. and fry fish. I love rice and peas. My favorite <laughs> thing. Fr- uh, so you mentioned, I probably mispronounced this, the Rastafari food culture. It's it, yeah. What does that mean? What kind of food is it? Well, growing up, you know, we grew up in a in, um, multicultural um, household, let's say, because my grand-auntie was typical Jamaican, but my father and my mother were a part of this col- other culture called Rastafari culture, which saw things differently and ate in a different way, which is a more, um, it's like you call health food people now. I guess mm-hmm. in these days you call them health food. Well, Jamaican food was one thing, but the Rastafarian food was a take on Jamaica food, but in a much more, I would say, more healthy way. Um, no animal fat, not a lot of greasiness, more steaming, uh, more vegetables, more vegetarian-based and fish-based, less cow and less goat. Um, and even the utensils that we used in, um, in, in, in that culture were not European u- utensils. So it wasn't forks made out of aluminum, and it wasn't plates, ceramic plates. It was... Um, a thing called calabash, mm-hmm. which is uh, is from a tree. Um, I think, what do you guys call it? Gourd? Or, I think it's yeah. called gourd here. Yeah, a gourd. So we would eat from the gourd, and we would eat with wooden utensils. And so it was a whole cultural rebellion, really, against the colonized um, mentality of a, a post-English um, settlement, you know? I've always wondered, if you drive from the North Coast down to Kingston over, over the mountains, the, mm. the world... Inland is very different than the coast. Is the food different there too, or not? Yeah, in a way. Yeah, I mean, I have, I have, I've experienced both because Bulbi is close to the coast, so we had um, fresh fish um, a lot of times, which was usually just cooked on a sheet of metal, which we call zinc. Um, no salt, no pepper, no nothing. Just you know, roasted fish straight out of the ocean. But when we go into the country to our relatives, where my father is from, like Saint Anne's. Is a bit away from the, the coast, and what we used to have there is a lot of roasted yam. Uh-huh. Roast yam, 
roast put a lot of roasting, a lot of open fire roasting going on. And if you did have any kind of um, protein, it was like salted fish. And that would be also be roasted. Because in, in those days, especially now too, in the country, they grew a lot of um, what we call ground food, which is like yam and potato and hearty, hearty foods like that. So, You mentioned Irish moss in your book. And I, I, I was a couple of years ago, I was uh, on the North Coast, and, and someone was selling Irish moss right on the street. Mm-hmm. You want to explain to people what Irish moss is? I, I thought it was something kind of out of the 19th century because I read about it in old cookbooks. You did? Oh, yeah. cool. Anyway, no. Irish moss is a seaweed. I mean, that's all. I, I, I don't know the intellectual definition of it, but I grew up with Irish moss. Uh, my father, his friends, my mother, everybody, we drank Irish moss. It's, as, I, as far as I know, it's a seaweed, and it can be pretty expensive, too, if you get good quality. It's very expensive per pound. For us, it, there's a myth. There's, well, I grew up with a myth around Irish moss, and it was mainly a myth about the virility of your manhood. So Irish moss is something mm. that is good for your virility as a man, you know. So all the guys, them, all, all, the, all my father's <laughs> friends and him and his friends, they would be drinking Irish moss, you know, and <laughs> with, with mixed with all type of different stuff, all type of concoctions and things like that. So, And Irish moss can be used as a base for stuff, you know, so it can be flavored any way you like. But it, it, It's also a, a thickener, base. right? Doesn't it thicken a little bit? Too? Well, it, it, it gets thick. Yeah. We don't use it. We don't. We only drink it. We don't use it oh, in any other way for thickened things. We just drink it. Well, I still have that bag. I guess now you mentioned virility. <laughs> I'm going to have to rush home and make a little smoothie out of it or something. Uh, so well, you, you know, you have to boil. You can't. You can't blend it up like that. You have to boil right. it. So it's not like you put it in a blender and blend it. You have to boil it and use a liquid. Okay. Well, with that advice, now that's the first <laughs> recipe I got from Ziggy Merlin. Um, so, your your wife is an Israeli of Iranian descent. So, and your book has a lot of Middle Eastern influences. Uh, what does she like to cook and eat? Well, uh, my wife. So, my wife. Uh, when I met her, before she was my wife, she's the first one who kind of really introduced me to salads like really hearty salads with like nuts and fruits in it. She made me this one salad one time and it was the best salad I ever had. And so I really got, she exposed me to even more health conscious eating, I would say, because she's from Israel, but she grew up in in LA. Um, She came to America in high school. She introduced me to a a lot of healthy eating, including some of the Israeli stuff, Middle Eastern stuff, the falafel, using turmeric, yeah, and other things, as well as her mother, her whole family, you know, them, them cook a lot of food. Persians eat a lot of rice, I get a lot of rice and stuff like that, you know. Yeah, I saw you had a quinoa salad, which was very uh, Middle Eastern, cilantro and pomegranate yeah. seeds. You also yeah, use a lot pomegranate, of... pomegranate, yeah. yeah <laughs> I, I love those. Coconut oil is in a lot of your recipes. You love coconut oil, uh, Talk to us about coconut oil. Well, before coconut oil was like this um, this trend, which it seems like now in America there's a trend for like these good oils. We used to eat coconut oil or cook with coconut oil in Jamaica. That used to be the oil. We, didn't, we never used to really have corn oil mm. or these other kind, type of oils. It was coconut oil was the basic um, foundation for cooking, especially for people who couldn't afford going to a supermarket or any fancy type of thing. It was coconut oil made by um, the people that sold it in the market. So homemade coconut oil. 
and they would boil the coconut and get the oil out of it and we would go to the marketplace and my mother would go to the marketplace and get the oil um, and then that's what we cook with and so everything I ate growing up until you know we got modernized was coconut oil and so I have that flavor in me um, I used to make a joke with my friends and say oh everything you cook you cook with coconut everything have coconut flavor <laughs> the rice the fish the egg no matter what you cook it have <laughs> a coconut flavor to it uh, you mentioned green bananas. Do you mean plantains or do you actually mean green bananas? No, green bananas. In Jamaica, we do green bananas. Um, that's another thing. A lot of time for breakfast, especially Saturdays or Sunday mornings, it will be boiled green bananas. So we'll boil a green banana. So if you boil them, do you mash them up afterwards? How do you eat them? You can. You can. Some We didn't most of the time. Most of the time, if you have a fish and then you, you, know, you get some of the that good coconut grease, and you just spread it over the banana and you eat that, you're nice. But sometimes you would mash it with butter like you do um, potatoes here. So, yeah. Um, Jamaican dumplings, you mentioned on a Sunday you might get your best mm-hmm. meals, dumplings in the morning, rice and peas yeah. in the afternoon. So, But a Jamaican dumpling is, is a sort of a fried flat biscuit. It's different than <laughs> an American. What, what, what is it? Well, it's not an American biscuit. It's not like the biscuit that you guys have over here. It's... Um, it's fr- it's a fried it's a fried flour it's a f- fried right. flour with um some baking powder it can be it can be fluffy or it can be dense, um but it's, it's like it's fried flour basically, and I mean that was one of my favorite things growing up, eating dumplings and um, with the ackee and saltfish, and you take the dumpling and you scoop up that uh, that good grease that you have there and then you mm. eat that. Yep, that's that's the best stuff. <laughs> yeah, and you also want to talk about what aki is, by the way? Aki, so aki now is, is Jamaica's national dish, I would say. It's a fruit. It's actually a fruit. It comes from a tree, a, a large enough tree. Um, it's red on the outside, but once it, it opens, it blooms, like a flower opens. It blooms, and then you see the yellow fruit with a big black seed at the, at the top of it. Um, it's poisonous, so you have to... Let it open. You cannot, like, force open the fruit. You have to make it open naturally before you can eat it. And so that is our national dish, um, and then we'll cook it. I, don't, I can't compare it to anything else that I've ever tasted anywhere in the world. It's something that is so unique, um, and I love it, so, yeah. So fish soup is, is one of those recipes you see a lot in a lot of places. You have it in your yeah. book. Is that something you would just sort of throw together when you lived in Bull Bay or your mother on yeah. wood? Yeah, that's a typical, like, we talk about Rastafari um, cuisine now. That would be a typical one, the fish soup. Or sometimes we call it fish tea hmm. because a lot of times you didn't have um, a lot of stuff to put in it. So it would be just like a fish broth, basically, and you drink it out of a cup. Hmm. And that would be it, you know, maybe a little salt, you know, for taste. Um, but fish is a dominant meal in Jamaica we have a lot of fish we li- in Bulbia we, we would go down to the seaside and help the, the fishermen bring in their boats and then fish soup is another one of those things that is has has that that Jamaican mythology of virility so the fish you know the, the, the fish soup was a very manly drink you know we, <laughs> you drink that with some you put some okra and you put some other virility stuff in it Jamaica 
Jamaica <laughs> cuisine has a lot to do with the virility of manhood, you know? So a lot of the wait, stuff wait, we Wait, wait, wait. So what does okra have to do with virility of manhood? Is so that also? Okra, really? Yeah. Okay, why? What's... I don't know. I don't know, man. I grew up with that. I don't, it works. Let's just say it oh, works. I have another theory. It was your aunt telling you to, to eat your fish tea because you you grew up to be a man, right? A man, right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I think that's what was going on. So if someone was going to Jamaica for the first time and wanted to avoid the tourist restaurants, where would you go? Where would you tell someone to go to eat real Jamaican food, to get away from the tourists? Probably Port Royal. Um, mm-hmm. And I used to go to Port Royal. We we Jamaicans, we go there. It's not, you know, it's, it's a local spot. Tourists welcome to, but it's it's food that we love, and it's fish. They have, it's right by the ocean side. They get a lot of fresh fish. You get your steam fish. You can get your escovitch. You can get your fried fish. You can get bami. You can get all different types oh, of Oh, could you Jamaican. talk about that? Because I've had that, and that's really good. Bami? Yeah, could you tell people what it is? Yeah. Bami is um cassava. It's a... Uh, so Jamaica is known to have been been the home of the Arawak Indians before the whole slave trade and Columbus and all these type of things. So and but in Jamaica it's called cassava. It's a starchy. Um, yeah, it's called cassava. Yeah. It's got okay. Yeah. So it's starchy and we make we make um like these thick patties out of them. Um, we call them bami, and it's fried. It's fried or it's steamed. It's nice steamed too, actually. Uh, we eat that with the fish, and if you go to Port Royal, you can get that typical dish there. You have three children, is that right? Seven. Seven, sorry. I, was, I missed yeah. four of them. Um, <laughs> who's counting? Um, it, w- w- what foods do they love? Well, the older ones are typical Jamaican food. And with, a, with a mix of my influence for try to eat more healthy. The younger ones who grew up here in America, who were born in America... It's a mix of my, me and my wife's culinary taste infused with some American food. My kids love the pancakes, but we change it. We kind of, I, I like pancakes too, but I was like, if we kind of give them some more nutritional value, we kind of have to like rethink the pancake. And I used, I kind of brainwashed them into, into saying, all right, we're not having pancakes, the, especially the boys. I brainwash them into eating something more healthy by saying, "Hey, we're not gonna have pancakes, guys. We're gonna have man cakes. It's gonna. It's that same Jamaican. It's that <laughs> same Jamaican again. thing. <laughs> there you go. Keeps working. <laughs> it, it's that same thing, and I, I never even realized it until now that you 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 made me aware of that. <laughs> yeah. So there there you go. So we make man cakes now. We add flax seeds and we add some other nutrition nutritious things to it to make it more beneficial, healthy. So it's a they they they're very eclectic. Growing up with a mother from Israel and a father from Jamaica, it's a multicultural eating. So the idea for doing a cookbook came from someone else in your family. Came from you. Uh, how did they get started? It came from me cooking and taking pictures of the food I cook and sharing it with friends and my wife. And they were like, "Yeah, that looks good. Let's do a cookbook." And it was it's very simple. We never really think about it much. And we said, yeah, we let's do a cookbook. Why not? Um, and we and we just did it. But I think the bigger the bigger um, idea now that I realize what it is and what it what food can do is just like music, or our books, or whatever it can open up your minds, open up people's minds to different cultures. I think the more we eat each other's food, is the more we can relate to each other. Right. The more we listen to each other's music, is the more we can relate to each other as human beings. And so this is how you know, like any other 
this is a very multicultural book. It's not like this is American American recipe book or Italian. It's like this there's something in there that you can explore that is goes beyond just a Jamaican thing or an American thing. It's it's really an open minded way of eating. And so I think um that's what it is for. You know, sometimes we do things without understanding why we're doing it, or sometimes we do things on a whim, but then you find out there's always a, an, another purpose behind it that you didn't think about or something that it does that you didn't think about. Uh, is there one moment, uh, maybe when you were younger, around food that you particularly remember, just uh, something that comes back to you a lot? You know, I come back to me a lot. We used to, and this used to be like torture for us as kids, so we used to go to church on Sundays. Um, Ethiopian Orthodox Church. It's like a Christian church, but my mother used to make us go to church. Actually, I grew up in church, a lot, a lot of church. But we couldn't eat before we go to church, so we were always hungry during like the four-hour service of church. Cause you, had to, you, could, you couldn't eat. You're not supposed to eat before you go to church on Sundays because they're going to give you the communion with the bread and the wine or whatever. But then after church was over, there would be food, and that was that would be like the biggest celebration of our lives for Sundays. Like, yeah, we can't eat now, and um, typically it would be food that is cooked at the church, and typically it would be like kalalu, which is greens, which is um. I've had that. It's very yeah, good. It's like yeah, it's not unlike spinach, but it's not spinach, but it's kalalu with green banana, boiled banana, or whatever they had. So that was always a thing with me, and I never forget that, like not eating and being really hungry as a child, and then. Having that escape of yes, we can't eat now after church is done, and that I remember that a lot, you know. I have to ask you a music question, which I, fascinates me, which is when you think about a song or a song comes to you, you start writing a song or you're working with your band. It, it, where does that inspiration come from to write a song? Well, it's different. It's, it, it comes all different ways. Um, it comes sometimes of the experience, sometimes of things you think. But the most, for me, the most special moments is when it comes from the place that you can't explain. Um, a lot of a lot of my songs, and the ones that you know really, really give me that otherworldly experience are the songs that I can't explain how they how they came. Um, some songs I really have to try and write. Or I have to think, all right, I want to write a song about this and I have to think about it. Um, those songs don't hold as much a special place as the songs that come from where you can't explain where they come from. Mm. And those experiences is what kind of let me know that there is more out there in our world that is that we don't understand, that we can't explain. You know, some we sometimes we just use the word God, eh? God is God. But God only means the unknown, really. God only means something that we really can't explain to you. I like those songs. I like the songs that you you just you, they just come to you and you don't you don't really know you. So you just say, you know, thank God for that. God gave it to me. It's an inspiration from God. It's the work of God, it's the work of the universe, or however you want to fit it into your 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 life, you know. That was Ziggy Marley. You know, I've spent time in Jamaica on the North Shore, not too far from Port Antonio. That's where Ian Fleming and Noel Coward had houses. And it was a destination a long time ago for Hollywood actors who treated Jamaica pretty much as a playground. 
But if you drive over the mountains towards Kingston, you see the real Jamaica. Plantains, coconuts, and cassava sold by the side of the road. Saltfish and ackee, peas and rice, fried dough, crazy roads, and very dark forests. Yeah, it's a poor country, but you leave Jamaica thinking it holds riches just beneath the surface. The music, the food, and of course the people. And as an outsider, Jamaica will always be a mystery. You're listening to Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. Right now, it's time for our wine expert, Stephen Muse, to tell me why he thinks Beaujolais is, in fact, the perfect wine for the holidays. I'm here at Formaggio Kitchen in Cambridge. Stephen, how are you? Good, Chris. And what is on the menu? (laughs) Three glasses of red wine here in front of you. Well, you know, Chris, we've talked about this before, but, you know, we've talked about our difficulty selling German wine because everybody thinks it's sweet or selling sherry because everybody thinks it's a maiden aunt's drink. Well, Beaujolais is a category that has this kind of confusion associated with it. And because I love them so much for the holidays, I thought maybe we'd try to clear some of that up with you today. I love Beaujolais too, but for the holiday? Oh, yeah. It sounds like this should be a a spring or... Yeah. Late summer. Well, rent. I think this is part of the confusion over the wine, um, is that folks think that it's not serious enough for cool weather drinking. It's not serious enough for a festive table. But I think it's just brilliant, and I hope I'm going to convince you that I'm right about that. Big hill to climb. <laughs> Go ahead. Get started. All right. So we're going to get you started with wine number one here. And you can see from looking at the bottle that it just really has one word written at the top here, and that is... Beaujolais. So this is your clue that what we're talking about is what I would call, not in a denigrating way, generic Beaujolais. So this isn't one of the more special wines from the area. Uh, it can come from almost anywhere, but when it's beautifully made, it's terrific. So Is this a blend from a lot of different producers? Very likely, or, okay. the, or the individual uh, producer is not in one of those special places I'm going to talk about in a minute. Okay. Mm-hmm. How'd you enjoy that? You know, it's it's light. It got some tannin in there. Um, it's pleasant. I don't think it's complex in any way, mm-hmm. but it's uh, it's refreshing. Um, yeah, a little fruity, a little tannin. It's you mm-hmm. know, it's good. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'm kind of hoping you're going to be more enthusiastic about the second wine. Um, uh, Stephen, you know what I love about doing this with you is if I don't like a wine as much as you, do, you get you're just totally deflated. I'm hurt. You're, you're, you're hurt. <laughs> yeah, you take it very personally. Okay, wine number two. All right, wine number two. So here we're taking a, a step up. Now you see that the the biggest word on the label here is Juliana or Julianas, as it's pronounced, um, and this is one of the ten villages or townships. Uh, in the Beaujolais that gets to put its own name on the bottle. And they do this because the vineyards are better sited. They make the wine to a more stringent set of requirements. They're a little more structured, a little more concentrated, a little more serious, and I think you'll, I think you'll get that. Well, here. I'm a serious guy, but I, I just want to tell you, you'll be happy. Yeah. I love this wine. Okay. It's smoother, it's yeah. deeper, the tan is not as sharp. The other one was a little very bright. Mm-hmm. This is a little uh, more sophisticated. I, I really like this wine a lot. So. Okay, good. good. I'm glad to hear it. All right, so wine number three. This is also one of the crew villages, as they're called. It's from Fleury, F-L-E-U-R-I-E. It's a naturally made wine, and that means all organic and biodynamic farming and all of that good stuff. But it also means that when it comes into the cellar, nothing added, nothing taken away fermented with natural yeasts, 
and no sulfur added at any point along the way here. I, uh, I really like this too. We, mm -hmm. I, now I know we've had arguments about whether natural wines actually taste different or not. Yeah. I, I claim they do. And I claim this actually has a really interesting, um, it's livelier, I think. Yeah. It's a lively yeah. wine, yeah. it's good. Well, I agree with that in part, Chris. It's not the organic farming that typically makes the wine taste different. When they bring them into the cellar, if the sulfur applications are very low or even zero, to me, it does make a big difference. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, good. Now, you probably want to know why I'm so keen on these, right, for... For the winter, for yeah, holidays, for, the winter, for, for holidays. dining. Absolutely. And there are, there are three key reasons here. First of all, the wines are really delicious. And, you know, nobody gets too excited about Beaujolais. It's not written about very much. But if you ask almost any sommelier in the United States if they could only drink one wine for the rest of their lives, one red wine, what would it be? You'd get a big percentage of them that would say it's Beaujolais. And, the, and why? Because it's just so delicious. So the other reasons I like it is because the alcohols tend to be a little bit lower. I mean, 12 and a half, 13% of alcohol. They're appetizing. They've got good acidity. They've got fruity flavors, earthy flavors. They're easy to match with food. And I'm telling you, they just, these, these wines just win my heart every time. Beaujolais for the big time. That's it. That's it. Excellent. Okay. Thank you, Steve. Good. That was wine expert Stephen Muse. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. After the break, is drinking good for you? Well, today might be the day to find out. Dr. Aaron Carroll tells us the answer. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to take some calls with Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready to go? I am very ready, Chris. Welcome to Milk Street Radio. Who's calling? Juanita French. Hi, Juanita. How can we help you? Or can we help you? Maybe that's the better question. <laughs> well, I hope so. I'm sure you can. I have trouble making caramel sauce. The first time I tried to make it, it turned out perfect. And ever since then, it turns into a big, nasty glob. You have the sugar syrup, it's the right color, and then you're adding the cream at the end. Is that what you're talking about? That's correct. And, and every time I add the cream, it turns into a big glob. Do you add it slowly? Do you add it all at once? I've tried it both ways. You know, make sure that the cream is like room temperature before mm-hmm. I put it in. I've tried putting in slowly. I've tried putting it in fast. And do you uh, whisk it heavily as it's going in? I try to, yes. Yeah. I think it's inevitable that every time you do, it is going to glob. You just have to keep cooking it until it melts Mm -hmm. again. How do you make your first part, the caramel part? I put it on the stove. Just sugar? Or sugar and water. Sugar and water. I think that is very difficult. Here's what I would recommend doing that will make your life a lot easier. Just put sugar in a pan and let it— Just sugar, nothing else? Nothing else. And just, you know, uh, start over sort of moderately, medium-low heat, and then it will melt. Mm -hmm. And, you know, stir it with a silicone spatula when it's almost all melted. You know, it's funny because about two months ago I saw a recipe for that. Mm -hmm. It said cover the bottom of the saucepan with the sugar. Yes. So it has to be evenly coated, Yes, it should be— a thin layer and the same thickness, so just coating the bottom. You can do it in skillet even. And the edges start to melt first. Yes, yeah. but then it will as long okay. as you keep an even temperature. Do you need to stir it the whole time you're no, doing No, no. Leave it alone. Let right. it melt. When it's almost there, then stir the unmelted stuff more right. into the melted stuff, but use the right tool, you know, a, a, like a silicone spatula. Okay. And then right. when it's just about the color you want it to be and you can smell it and see it, heat your cream, mm-hmm. stand back, Add the cream, it will glob, and then just keep gently heating right. it and it will melt again. Not a problem. Okay, but the reason I've always taken it off the heat you when I've put no, the cream in. That's the problem. No, you have to remelt it. It will seize. There's no way around it. Caramel is like napalm, it can take off your skin. It's much higher than 212, and it's dangerous. When you add the cream, even if you brought it to a boil and you can bring cream to a boil, it won't separate, but it's below the temperature of caramel. So there's two different temperatures. It's going to seize. Do stand back, though. And the reason I recommend doing a dry caramel is then you don't have to worry about the caramel crystallizing, which sometimes happens when you do water and sugar and melt it. The only thing I do is once it globs, I tend to turn the heat down a little. So it's kind of a low heat. Mm -hmm. Low heat. You just want to melt it back in. Okay. And there's one other tip I find for the color. Once it starts the color, it goes fast. Really fast. So I take it off the heat Mm -hmm. and just hold the pot and swirl it. Mm -hmm. because it'll continue to color. And if it's not as dark as you want, then put it back on. As soon as it starts to go, get it off the heat and swirl. Great suggestion. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I really appreciate you guys helping me through this. Pleasure. Sure. Thanks, Juanita. Yeah, thank you. 
This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. If you'd like your cooking questions answered, give us a ring. That's 1-855-4-BOWTIE, 1-855-4-BOWTIE. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Hi, this is Melissa Warringer, and I'm from Cape Cod. How can we help you today? Well, I have a chronic problem, and you're just the perfect people to help me out. When I roast a chicken, and I give you a very specific example, I've had a five-pound chicken. I put it in a roasting pan on a rack, same one that I use for turkey. And I started off at 400 degrees. Actually, I keep it at 400. And um, the fat starts to spatter down onto the bottom of the pan. Sometimes there's some liquid there too. It starts sputtering. And then it starts smoking because it's so hot at the bottom of the pan that it fills my kitchen with smoke and it's disgusting. I don't know how not to do it you know, how to prevent that. Well, did you start with a clean oven? Yes, yes. And you started with a deep pan? Yes. Hmm, this is so well, that's, interesting. that's zero for two. I know, really, really. Because <laughs> Keep technically 400 isn't that hot. I mean, fat will come out of I, it. I, I have an answer. Okay. Put potatoes in the bottom of your Yum. pan, and all that schmaltz, that chicken fat, will drip down on the potatoes, and it's a twofer. There'll be no oh, smoking. I yeah. love it. Or yeah. vegetables. Or even any roasted vegetables. vegetables. That yeah. sounds wonderful. You know, now can I tell well, a Julia Child story? Yeah. Yes. First of all, before I digress, did we help you there? Does that sound like yes, a good plan? The, the idea of, you know, roasted potatoes. vegetables at the bottom yeah. is wonderful. Sounds yummy. Yes. I agree. I'm going to try that. At any rate, so years ago, I used to do all the prep for all the chefs on Good Morning America, and Barbara Kafka was on with her book called Roasting. The premise of the book was everything was roasted at 500, 500 degrees. degrees. Yes. So oh, dear. Uh, she was going to make on Thanksgiving Day a 12-pound turkey in a 500-degree oven, and it was done in something crazy like 45 minutes. A key element is you had to have a clean oven and you had to let it rest afterwards, you know, for about a half an hour, 45 minutes. So we did it successfully. We let it rest. We carved it. It was wonderful. I went home. The phone rings. It's Julia. I was lucky enough. I used to work with Julia. So she would yes. call me. I was like one of her millions of children slash protégés. <laughs> and she called up. She said, oh, dearie, I just saw that. Does that really work? That doesn't make any sense. And so, you know, because she used to like flip her turkey, you know, start it on the right. breast. And, you know, I mean, I wouldn't do that. It's way right. too much work. So, okay, a week later, I get a phone call. She said, oh, dearie, I tried. It was terrible. Smoke alarm went off. Never doing it again. Well, she didn't start with a clean oven. So that is question number one. So she threw it out the window. That's Julia. She's always trying something new. I mean, that's what I love about her. I, I was at her house a few times. And the first time I went over, she wanted to prove to me that a bread machine was a good idea. I think she got over that. Uh, she, she got over that really quickly. Yeah. Yes, that was not a great idea. No, actually. it wasn't. So I'm going to do oh, the I'm same thing: <laughs> roast chicken. Yay! I like that. Yeah, just okay. put potatoes. Yes, at the bottom. yes with yeah. potatoes and vegetables underneath. Yeah. All right, Melissa. Absolutely. Thank you for asking well, that question. Th- that's even much better than I could have hoped for. Thanks. Okay. Thanks Thank for you. calling. You bet. Bye bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. It's time to answer the perennial question, especially this time of year: Is drinking good for you? I'm chatting with Dr. Aaron Carroll, who also contributes to the New York Times The Upshot and is a a frequent contributor to Milk Street. Welcome back to Milk Street. Thanks for having me again. A pleasure. Uh, What is on your mind this week? Well, I thought we might talk about alcohol because it seems like it's the time of year when people are thinking about it. And it's something that I've written about a number of times and people seem to be very interested in it. I, I hope this is a for, not against. I am for, more than I think a lot of other people are, but I'm certainly, what I really am, is against 
people who are strongly, strongly against it in the sense that they think that it can't be part of a, a healthy diet if it is used appropriately. So what's the research say? So you'd be surprised at how much research is actually pro-alcohol. In fact, a lot of it even has to do with getting all the way to outcomes like mortality, that people who drink lightly or even moderately uh, often will have lower mortality rates, lower rates of disease, and will live longer than people who abstain and people, of course, who drink quite heavily. You know, part of it is also, you know, what is a glass of wine? My mother, many, many years ago, before she passed away, uh, doctor said, you can only have one glass a night. And her answer was, I'm going to go out and buy the biggest bloody glass I can find and <laughs> fill it to the top. So, so and s- what, what, what is a serving of alcohol? Let's start so with that. So it, de- it depends, of course, on what type of alcohol you're drinking. About a shot of, of hard alcohol or liquor is, is about one. About one beer is a serving of alcohol. And a, and a normal-sized glass of wine is one serving of alcohol. And moderate drinking, as defined by most sources for men, would be no more than really 14 drinks a week for a man, about two a night, um, and about half of that for a woman. But of course, that will also depend on weight, uh, on many other things as well. But you, I mean, you can drink most nights. And you can, even if you're a man, you can drink more than one drink most nights and still be under what would be considered moderate drinking. And lots and lots of studies will show that that amount uh, or less is actually associated with many positive health outcomes. So what, what's the physiology of alcohol, if anyone knows? What, what, why is it better for uh, mortality, for example? Well, it seems to have its greatest effect on cardiovascular disease. So you wind up seeing fewer heart attacks, fewer strokes, better, uh, better cardiovascular outcomes for people who drink moderately or lightly. And those better outcomes are so overwhelming that they actually will more than compensate some of the negative effects you see with some cancers. So with some types of cancer, especially breast cancer, there have been a number of studies which show that alcohol consumption can increase the relative risk of getting that cancer uh, over what you might otherwise see, but it's still a very small total risk. And the cardiovascular benefits are so much greater that they sort of overcome it. So that overall rates of death go down with drinking, even though you could cherry pick and find a rate of cancer which might go up. Some people think that has to do with cholesterol. There's even a dose response with more alcohol consumed leading to better levels of the good cholesterol. And that may be what is associated with some Hmm. of the better cardiovascular outcomes. So are all alcohols created equal? In other words, I I love bourbon and also like wine. Uh, Some studies seem to suggest that wine is great for you, but maybe a hard liquor like bourbon is less uh, efficacious in terms of mortality. It's less than the bourbon is less efficacious than that the studies seem to focus in general on wine. And so more studies have been done with wine than with any other type of alcohol. So when people talk about the quote-unquote proven benefits, they're usually referring to wine. But the studies that do include other types of alcohol so show really the same types of effects. Now, very often when you write for The Upshot or you're on this show, you also talk about the, the social environment around a topic. That is, people say you should drink a lot of water, but the, the studies don't show that. What, what, what's, what's surrounding the consumption of alcohol they give people the impression they, sh- they shouldn't drink as much. Is there something else going on here? Uh, well, well, a number of things. One is that we should be totally clear that people that abuse alcohol have incredibly negative health outcomes. I mean, many tens of thousands of deaths a year due to alcohol abuse. And unfortunately, 
in life, and we do this with food as well, we see what happens when people do too much of something and therefore decide that that thing is bad without recognizing that a correct use of it or an appropriate consumption of it is actually not only fine, but in many ways is good. You also get a lot of history tied up in this. I'm, you know, prohibition. There's morality tied up with it. Sometimes even I think religion gets tied up with it. Yeah, I did a show, I did a show on prohibition a year ago, and the two things that are interesting. One, people drank more during prohibition than they did before. Absolutely. And two, it really introduced women into the notion of a bar or a speakeasy. So all of a sudden, women started drinking more than they did, which opened up the market. So the best thing that ever happened to the liquor companies was prohibition, I guess, right? Uh, In many ways. I mean, usually prohibiting something is a way to bring a lot of attention to it. But it's also interesting, and when you look at sort of the range of what people consume, so much of the country consumes no alcohol or incredibly small amounts of alcohol that you get, you know, half the country might have a glass or less a year. What? Of alcohol. Really? Yeah, I mean, the vast majority of alcohol consumption is done by a small number of people in the United States. And so that leads people in general sometimes to think that, well, those if the norm is that people aren't drinking, then the people who do drink must have something wrong with them. I feel good. I can have up to two drinks a day. That's the limit. Yes. Uh, I guess my wife might have up to seven or eight drinks a week. But uh, Dr. Aaron Carroll, you just made me feel good about my lifestyle. Thank you. That, that's my goal. <laughs> Take care. Take care. That was Dr. Aaron Carroll, frequent contributor to The New York Times. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. It's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Milk Street Basic is how to get garlic flavor without the garlic aftertaste. You know, when you chop or mince garlic cloves, it releases the sulfurous compounds, and a lot of those will stick around for a really long time. Here's a better way. Take a whole head of garlic, cut off the top quarter or so, and then simmer it whole when you're doing a soup or stew. When you're finished, take it out and squeeze out the soft cloves back into the soup or stew and whisk to combine. Now you have a great subtle garlic flavor, but without that heavy aftertaste. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can listen to our weekly shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can also download our show on our own website and also get the recipes from each week's episode at MilkStreetRadio.com. You know, I admit it, I loved interviewing Ziggy Marley, and it's not just his Jamaican accent or his music or even the Rastafarian creed. It's really something else, and maybe it's a line from his song, Got to be true to myself. As he says, I'm moving on, I'm grooving on, I'm finally free. Thanks so much for listening to Mill Street Radio. See you next week. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production assistant Carly Helmetog. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugar. Senior audio editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help Debbie Paddock. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.